This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about a band that some people loved, some people hated. Everybody had an opinion. And that's what was interesting about them. And I'm talking about Nirvana. That was Nirvana, taped in November 18, 1993, at the Sony Music Studios in New York City. This is when MTV did a great service to many bands by stripping down the loud, amplified music that we all love to get down to the bone of the bone to what the demo tape may have sounded like when many of these bands first got signed. What drew label executives, Geffen Records in particular, to this band. At the same time, Geffen was courting the Counting Crows. And Gary Gersh in particular, one of the great A&R guys in music history when I was living out in L.A. at the time. What a remarkable talent to see the talent in Kurt Cobain and in Adam Duritz of the Counting Crows. Two very different kinds of bands. And I think that's what made Geffen Records so special. Well, these guys went into the studio with barely a drum kit and almost no amps, just stage amps. And so many people I knew who didn't like Nirvana walked away from that night of music saying, my goodness, by the way, the same with Eric Clapton. A lot of people who thought, yeah, lots of blues jams, all that electric guitar playing. Well, when they broke down that set, the same thing happened to Eric. And don't forget Tony Bennett, because Tony Bennett went on Unplugged. And it revitalized his career. And for the next 20 years, still playing to this day, I'm going to see him at the Orpheum in Memphis. He's selling out because a whole new generation of young people saw Tony, an upright bass, and a keyboard player dazzle them with Copeland songs and Irving Berlin songs. And so we're going to play a little bit more from this remarkable session, which got released in 1994 on November 1st. performance this raw performance from nirvana 
and Kurt Cobain ended with, of all things, a Lead Belly song. And, well, I don't think anyone in the audience was expecting this kind of vocal performance from Kurt Cobain. I know I wasn't. Let's take a listen. On this day in history, Nirvana MTV Unplugged in New York first aired. This is Our American Stories. Kurt Cobain, Nirvana Unplugged. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to capture all of our This Days in Histories, as always brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College. our American story and now it's time for our final thought segment 
And final thoughts feature this week. It's from Kristen Inbody, who writes for the Great Falls Tribune. And it's about her time with a former POW, about her friend Keith Ginther, who passed away in 2014. Her piece was titled, Christmas at War, POW Recalls Silent Night. And she recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. I knew Keith Ginther liked gladiolas. He grew them by the hundreds. And he was a bachelor farmer. And he was quiet. And that's all I knew about him, although I'd known him all my life. One year around Christmas time, out of nowhere, he just started telling me the story. I wrote it up, and he carried it in his walker for years. He died in 2014. And I think he was surprised after being quiet for so long what came out, but he was proud too. Silent night, holy night. When the United Methodist Congregation sings Silent Night by candlelight on Christmas Eve, perhaps it will mean the most to the former POW among them. Though he loves the most famous of carols, Keith Ginther, 90, dreads Christmas. He joked that it's because he has to wear a dress shirt and tie, but it's really the memories that come with Christmas. In December 1944, Ginther became one of the 23,000 Americans captured or missing by the end of the Battle of the Bulge, Germany's final and ultimately unsuccessful offensive on the Western Front. He began a 150-mile march into Germany 67 years ago this month. He remembers feeling humbled in defeat, even more so as the POWs met German artillery pulled by horses or one truck pulling another on its way to the front. How could these guys hold the upper hand, the Yanks wondered. We sure weren't very happy, he said. The column of POWs passed through a countryside devastated by war and damaged by Allied bombing. At one village, the POWs had to clear rubble so German artillery could pass through. An American bomber pilot joined the prisoner ranks. These people seemed to be more hostile to airmen whom they blamed for being bombed, Ginther said. The Germans harassed the downed pilot. They had rushed the sides of the column trying to grab him. The villagers were starving, exhausted, and angry. When the hostility was at its worst, all the prisoners had reason to be afraid, though none so much as the captured bomber pilot. Yet at that moment, an American in the ranks began singing Silent Night. Pretty soon the Germans were singing Silent Night too. So it calmed things down, Ginther said. Halfway through the first verse, you could hear the words in German, too. If not for the song, which for one moment brought a measure of peace to a small corner of Germany, I don't really know what would have happened, he said. The guards would have tried, I guess, to protect him. (laughs) 
And again, thank you for that really beautiful reading, Kristen. And that's Kristen Inbody, who writes for the Great Falls Tribune and writing about her friend, Keith Ginther, who survived, well, what almost nobody should ever have to survive. And that's war as only World War II vets and World War I vets and guys in real hard action experience. And now on to uh, another story and one more final thought story about, well, a judge, a very famous judge. We gave you an hour on Justice Scalia. And this one is about Justice Ginsburg. And we found this on the Academy of Achievements terrific podcast, What It Takes. And it was from their fascinating interview with Justice Ginsburg. And near the end, they talked about her loving husband, Marty, dying and the surprising thing he left behind for her. Here is Justice Ginsburg. I found this letter in the drawer of the stand next to Marty's bed in the hospital. When we knew it was the end and I was taking him home so that he could die at home rather than in the hospital, um, I was just checking to see that we had everything he brought with him. And on a yellow pad, there was a letter to me. And it reads, My dearest Ruth, you are the only person I have loved in my life, setting aside a bit parents and kids and their kids. And I have admired and loved you almost since the day we first met at Cornell some 56 years ago. It was wrong about 56. It was nearly 60 years. We were married for 56 years. What a treat it has been to watch you progress to the very top of the legal world. I will be in Johns Hopkins Medical Center until Friday, June 25th, I believe. And between then and now, I shall think hard on my remaining health and life and consider on balance the time has come for me to toughen out or to take leave of life because the loss of quality now simply overwhelms. I hope you will support where I come out but I understand you may not. I will not love you a job less. And just sign Marty. That's tough to listen to. Ruth and Marty met at Cornell University where there were four men to every woman and Ruth said it meant that the women were ever so smarter than the boys and that Marty was the very first man she dated who actually cared, actually cared that she had a brain. The two got married, they went to Harvard Law together, and they bring their 14-month-old daughter with them. She's the only mom at Harvard Law, and one of only nine women out of the class of 500 students. That's all challenging enough, but then Marty gets testicular cancer. Here's Ruth on that moment in their lives. We never thought about the possibility or never talked about the possibility that he might not survive. We were concentrating on getting him through the third year. And by the way, Marty went to classes 
for only two weeks, the last two weeks of the semester. In that semester, he got the highest grades that he ever got in law school because he had the best tutors. And Harvard was known as a competitive place. My experience was the opposite. His classmates, my classmates, rallied around the two of us. And he got individual tutorials to help prepare him for the exams. How did I get through it? Well, I was able to get by with very little sleep. Because of the radiation, Marty couldn't ingest anything till midnight. And so between midnight and two, we he had dinner, my bad hamburger usually, and then he would dictate to me his, his senior paper. And then he'd go back to sleep, and it was about two o'clock, then I'd take out the books and start reading what I needed to read to be prepared for classes the next day. Carrying the load for two. And she does it, and not only is it not a detriment that she has a husband in such a condition and is, well, as so many people would see it, saddled with a kid while at Harvard Law, she rises to the highest ranks of Harvard Law School, and I believe it's because of those things and not despite them. And what human beings can do in times of trial well, it's, it's always when we learn who we are. This is Lee Habib, and the stories always we welcome from you. Final thoughts, a eulogy, a brush with death, old, new, send them to us, young. There's nothing more tragic than a young person passing. Share their stories, share our stories, let's share them together. This is Lee Habib. And this is Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're back with one of our favorite topics, random acts of kindness. You can find all sorts of these uplifting stories at randomactsofkindness.org. It's an inspiring resource and a great one to share with your kids. Also, make sure to leave your story there, and hopefully it can make its way onto Our American Stories right here. And here we begin with a story we found from Denver, Colorado, featuring a very sick little girl who had more important things to do than feel sorry for herself. Then it is my absolute pleasure to introduce to you, Marley! She's quite the star and the driving force behind this school fundraiser. In one week, Mount Vista You can see why a school would want to rally behind Marley, a nine-year-old with an infectious smile. She was once the fastest soccer player on her team, 
but last year she was diagnosed with a rare cancer called rhabdomyosarcoma, a malignant soft tissue cancer. She went through 40 weeks of chemo and her kicking foot had to be amputated. It was a tough conversation and so I told her and she, I thought she understood it and then two days later she asked me, so when will it grow back? Once Marley wrapped her mind around it, she also made up her mind. It wasn't going to stop her. In less than a week, she was doing cartwheels on it, literally doing cartwheels, which scared us, but we don't want to tell her she can't do anything. When it came time for Marley to make a wish. Because we had talked about it for a long time. What do you want to do with your wish? So one day she said, you know, if I've got to think about it this hard, I just don't think I need a wish. Instead, Marley decided to give, give hope and comfort to other kids. She decided Build-A-Bear is where her wish would start. Making bears with love. Give them each a big kiss. To give to kids. That's good. Who are where she's been. Here we go. In the Pediatric Oncology Center at Children's Hospital. I did that wish because I knew how it felt to be... Um, to feel sick at the hospital, so um, it would make me feel better if I had a Build-A-Bear. 60 bears in Marley's wagon. Donor bears all done. And every single one slated for a patient, a child who desperately needs a smile. Yours is adorable. I hope that they like it and that they feel better when they get it. Today, the Oncology Center takes on a new life, one that, as you can imagine, doesn't normally exist. Kids still have bald heads and machines in tow, but today they will smile. You want this one? Yeah. <laughs> one by one, bears come off the shelf. Do you want to give her an abrazo and say thank you? Thank you. Yeah. They're given a new name. A white one? All right. He's going to get dirty. Thank right. you so much, sweetheart. And told about the heart Marley placed in all of them. Wait, you had cancer too? Is it all gone? Each one with a wish. It feels good because they would come in before not looking really good, but then they would come, they would finish their bear and then smile. A wish of healing, comfort, and more smiles today than yesterday. Every kid that I saw left here, they were all smiling and hugging their bears. And that's why this isn't where Marley's wish ends. With every bear hug, her wish continues to live on. Amazing story, and I almost want to get Marley on this show, and I think we all got something to learn from someone like this, and this is why when you start to feel like you're a victim, you want to haul out Marley, always. You just want to haul her out. And here, a story from Kenner, Louisiana, and again, this is from randomactsofkindness.org, and this is our Random Act of Kindness segment that we try to do every Friday at this time, because, well, you've had enough of bad news all week long. And it's time to hear something positive. Uh, This one's a simple story of kindness, reminding us that even when the national conversation is polarized, we can take care of each other. The viral image that has everyone talking, just one man and one woman walking in the rain. When I saw this, I thought people need to see that. There are people that are kind on both sides of the color line, and we need to focus more on how we can help each other and how we can be there for each other rather than what sets us apart. I got three of you, and the last one was the best one. Deepak Sani snapped to the shot, sharing the sweet moment on Facebook. In the middle of a downpour, the man opens his umbrella and his heart, walking shopper after shopper through a rain-soaked Target parking lot. 
There was no rhyme or reason to doing it. It was just, hey, people need help. James Varnado is the good Samaritan in shining armor who didn't even realize he was caught on camera. I didn't expect somebody to show it, give any kind of recognition or anything like that. I just did what I always do. It was really interesting because people were just really touched. They were taken aback. I mean, no one really wants to get wet, but this guy didn't also have to take it upon himself to help people. And in this time of tension with shootings, violence, and protests capturing headlines, his act of kindness captured hearts. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter if you're the richest person in the world or the poorest person in the world. Somebody needs help, help them. If someone needs help, help them. And they're right. I mean, if it bleeds, it leads. So the media is just going to always pounce on what separates us and what angers people. And, you know, if you're watching the news every day, you'd think these are the most violent times in our city's history. And by the way, these are the least violent times in our city's history. Cops have done an amazing job in our big cities of lowering crime rates. And civilians have been committing less crimes. And so none of these things are being heralded. It's always the outlier. It's the bad cop, boom, on television. It's the it's a couple of crazy kids doing some stupid stuff in a gang. It's on it's on television. And the average person trying to get ahead and do the right thing, that's just not an interesting story to the media. And that's the ultimate bias of the media. And that is to sensationalism, ultimately. And finally, here's a story involving some inmates breaking out of a holding area to get to their jailer in Parker County, Texas. And just when we think we know how a story will go, there's always room for kindness and pleasant surprise. At least eight prisoners behind a locked door. One armed guard across the room. Watch the lower part of the screen as the guard suddenly slumps unconscious. He just, you know, fell over and I thought it looked like an act or something. I mean, you know, he died right there, man. Nick Kelton and other inmates shouted for help, then managed to bust out of their holding room even though they knew that was dangerous. I was a little worried because when they, they're going to come with their guns drawn on us. The guard had no pulse. Inmates screamed and banged on doors so loud that deputies upstairs in court came running. They thought it was a big old fight going on down there. They thought we was taking over. He had keys and he had a gun. Yeah, it could have been extremely bad situation. Sergeant Ryan Spiegel rushed in first, corralled the inmates, still not completely understanding what was happening. Deputies started CPR. Paramedics arrived, shocked the guard, regained a pulse. Inmates watched life returning. Why did you do that? That's a good man. I'm saved alive. Uh, Nick Kelton says he's a meth addict facing his fourth trip to prison. Parker County Sheriff's Captain Mark Garnett believes prisoners certainly helped the guard and likely saved him. He could have been there 10, 15 minutes. And before anybody, you know, any other staff, any other sheriff's officer, county personnel had walked in there and found him. To show one's true stripes is to reveal character. Nick Kelton and the others went to court expecting to do time, not to give it. I mean, it never crossed my mind not to, whether he's got a gun or a badge, if he falls down, I'm helping. It seems natural to me. Yeah. The jailer doesn't want to be identified. He is expected to return to work next week. Ironically, that little holding pen that the inmates broke out of to raise the alarm, that's been reinforced so that that can't happen again. <laughs> Irony. Yeah, there it is. That's the word. And by the way, here on Our American Stories, we talk to guys in prison because they're human beings there. And many of them can be redeemed. Many of them have been there because of bad choices. 
circumstance. But we talked to them, and look what they did here. Great stories. Go to randomactsofkindness.org. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and it's Christmas time and so we're gonna playing we're gonna be playing a lot of Christmas music and by the way the guitar playing you hear on a lot of our ins and outs is by a guy named Tommy Emmanuel and Jesse loves him and we've come to love him and there's nothing he can't play no kind of music he can't play and from what I understand seeing him play live is something and he sells out everywhere he goes Tommy Emanuel, just a great musician. And no words, no singing, just one guy and one guitar. Old school. And you're listening to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and we love telling you the stories of songs, and this is quite a story. And by the way, for a really great story, go to our Bing and Bowie story on how the little drummer boy got made. Oh my goodness. It's just terrific. Well... Nearly all of us have heard the song, but where did it come from? The song did not start out as a song at all. It was a children's book written by a Jewish man named Robert L. May. He was an ad man for the Montgomery Ward department store in Chicago. In 1939, the May family was in a rough spot. They were hit hard by the Great Depression, and Bob's wife Evelyn was diagnosed with breast cancer two years earlier. Though luck had not been kind, Bob did not lose heart and channeled his hope into a special project, a story about an outcast reindeer. When Bob was done, he showed it to his boss. And, of course, his boss hated it. By the way, we learned that about Charlie Brown's Christmas. Nobody at CBS liked the thing. That's actually proof that it's probably going to be a hit, by the way. When the suits don't like it and the executives don't like it, that means the American public probably will. At the time, a red nose was associated with Lots of drinking, not exactly the kind of image Ward was looking to project. But Bob wouldn't take no for an answer. He persuaded a company artist to go with him to the zoo to sketch reindeer, cute little reindeer that weren't at all suggestive of a long week at a bar. Those sketches made all the difference. The project moved forward. In July of 1939, Bob's wife, Evelyn, died. Bob's boss suggested that he take time off and give the book responsibility to someone else. Bob refused. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was his story. Bob said, quote, I needed Rudolph now more than ever. Gratefully, I buried myself in the work. Finally, in late August, it was done. Why a reindeer? Well, 
We have his daughter to thank for that. It was his four-year-old Barbara's favorite animal. He always made sure to read to his daughter Barbara, developing parts of the story in order to get her input. Smart man. Barbara loved the story, and so did everyone else. Montgomery Ward gave away 2.4 million copies that Christmas, and their next reprint was for 3.6 million. It was a huge hit, and really could have brought in the big bucks for Montgomery Ward, but in 1946, they signed off all rights to Bob and his family. As we'll hear later, this made all the difference. Ten years after the book, Bob's brother-in-law, Johnny Marks, turned the Rudolph story into a song. A song that nobody wanted to record. Fortunately, Gene Autry's wife loved the song. So Gene, knowing what was good for him, agreed to record it. He tucked it away on the B-side of a record and didn't think much else of it. Until, of course, it became a number one hit. In fact, it became Autry's biggest selling record ever. The song eventually sold 12.5 million copies, bested only by White Christmas. So, fellas, when your wife tells you to do something, just do it. So let's hear a little bit of Gene Autry's version now. You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen But do you recall The most famous reindeer of all Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Had a very shiny nose And if you ever saw it You would even say it and we're going to come back to more of that Autry recording, but we wanted to move forward with the story. Now, for some of us, our most familiar memories of Rudolph are from the 1964 Christmas special, which was made 25 years after the original poem. Here's the scene where Rudolph is born. We can even hear the sound his red nose makes. Well, now let me tell you about Rudolph. It all started a couple of years before the big snow. It was springtime, and Santa's lead reindeer, Donner, had just become a proud papa. Nah, we'll, we'll call him Rudolph. Rudolph is a lovely name. Rudolph. Hey, he knows his name already. Papa. Mama. He's, he's got a shiny nose. Sh shiny? I'd even say it glow. Well, we'll simply have to overlook it. Now, how can you overlook that? His beak blinks like a blinking beacon. <laughs> well, Donner, where's the new member of the family? After all, if he's going to be on my team someday, he'd better get to know me. <laughs> well, hi there. Aren't you the sturdy little fellow? <laughs> Santa. <laughs> and smart, too. Great bouncing iceberg. Now, I'm sure it'll stop as soon as he grows up, Santa. Well, let's hope so if he wants to make the sleigh team someday. 
And by the way, an excerpt from the original poem reads thus. "'Twas the day before Christmas and all through the hills, the reindeers... "'Twas the day before Christmas and all through the hills, the reindeer were playing, enjoying the spills of skating and coasting and climbing the willows and hopscotch and leapfrog, protected by pillows. While every so often they'd stop to call names at one little deer not allowed in their games. Ha-ha! Look at Rudolph! His nose is a sight! It's red as a beet! Twice as big! Twice as bright! While Rudolph just wept, what else could he do? He knew that the things they were saying were true. It's really just spectacular, and I'm, I'm not Burl Ives. And Burl Ives, my goodness, what a, what a voice, what an actor, what a part. But back to the, the great and epic show. So poor Rudolph ran away, and his mom and dad went out to find him. So they make it back, and when everybody hears their story, they start to realize maybe... They were a little hard on the misfits. Maybe misfits have a place, too. Even Santa realizes that maybe he was wrong. Rudolph, I promise, as soon as this storm lets up, I'll find homes for all those misfit toys. Latest weather report, sir. Well, this is it. The storm won't subside by tonight. We... We'll have to cancel Christmas. Papa, are you sure? Everything's grounded. Oh, oh the poor kids. They've been so good this year, too. But I couldn't chance it. I'll have to tell everybody that it's all off this year. I've got some bad news, folks. Christmas is going to be canceled. There's nothing I can do. This weather. Yeah. Rudolph, Rudolph, please. Could you tone it down a bit? I mean, that nose of yours. Uh, that nose. That beautiful, wonderful nose. Huh? Rudolph, Christmas is not off, and you're going to lead my team. From what I see now, that'll cut through the murkiest storm they can dish up. What I'm trying to say is, Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? It will be an honor, sir. As we know, Bob May was down on his luck while writing, Rudolph. Many poems and songs born out of tragedy are sullen and weighty, but not this one. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. This children's story turned into a song that was filled with hope. Hope for those who feel downcast. And useless. Now let's listen to Bob May's youngest daughters, Martha May and Betsy Decker, recount the story of Rudolph and what that little reindeer has meant to them. My father was a wonderful, creative, incredible person um, who gave the world something that will never be taken away. All of the other reindeer. He never, ever would have imagined that, that it would be what it is today. My house is full of reindeer. I have every ornament. We feel very fortunate. There are a lot of things we couldn't do, wouldn't have college educations, for one, uh, if it weren't for, for Rudolph. And there you have it. The memory lives on. And that's the thing about art and stories. You can just pass them along. And Gene Autry's a smart man. Again, he listened to his wife, put this on the B-side, 
and it became his biggest hit. The story of a song, the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Let's leave where we started with Gene Autry's version. This is Our American Stories, the story of a song, a beloved Christmas song. Red-Nosed Reindeer had a very shiny nose And if you ever saw it You would even say it glows All of the other reindeer Used to laugh and call him names They never let poor Rudolph join it our American stories. The first state to recognize Christmas as a holiday was Louisiana in 1837. By 1860, only 13 states recognized Christmas as a legal holiday. Five years later, by 1865, that number had gone from 13 to 31. What happened? The Civil War happened. The nostalgic yearning for Christmas at home during the war happened. What also happened were the little gestures that occurred on the battlefield during unofficial Christmas truces between the blue and the gray. So after the war, one of the ways President Lincoln saw to reconcile the nation was through Christmas. In 1870, Christmas was made a national holiday. Let's now take a look and see what's under the hood of this story. Sleigh bells ring, are you listening? Ah, Christmas. Up goes the tree, on go the lights. An exciting season of presents and parties only a Scrooge could hate. But where did all the traditions start? Why do we bring huge evergreen trees into our homes? How did Santa get the red suit, the sleigh, and the eight reindeer? And what about Rudolph? Today we are going to pull back the curtain to unveil the hidden history of our cherished Christmas holiday. These days, cities and towns seem to be dressing up earlier and earlier for the Christmas season. There are Santas at every shopping mall from coast to coast. And there are lights, lots and lots of lights. We liked lights. As little kids, I think we all jumped in the family car and drove through different neighborhoods to see the lights. The first Christmas lights were invented in 1882 by Edison Company Vice President Edward Johnson. Later, General Electric offered a string of 24 bulbs for $12, which is equal to $280 today. This bright idea is often credited to a New England telephone worker. The real inspiration came from his job where he worked for the telephone company and it was you know, the little light bulbs in the early telephone switchboards that gave him the idea for what we now know as Christmas lights. What child is the Christmas story is one we all know. After a rude refusal by a local innkeeper, Mary and Joseph bedded down in a barn in Bethlehem where they gave birth to a son, the Son of God. Those are the biblical origins of Christmas. But centuries before Jesus walked the earth, early Europeans were celebrating light and birth in the darkest days of winter. Every December on the shortest day in the year, when the earth was tilted furthest from the sun, came the winter solstice. It marked the darkest day of the year, 
but also the time when the promise of longer days gave cause to celebrate. To honor the occasion, ancient Norse tribes held a 12-day festival. They called Yule. You have the crops brought in, you have the meat being slaughtered, you slaughter some of the farm animals because you can't feed them during the dark days of winter. So there's a lot of meat on hand. The beer has been made. It's perfect time for a feast. Fathers and sons dragged home the biggest log they could find and set it on fire. This Yule log burned for all 12 days of the feast and they brought evergreens, firs and holly into their homes. Over the centuries the concept grew and later it was co-opted into our modern Christmas tree custom. Today picking out a tree is a family tradition and in any given year American farmers are growing 350 million trees on 15,000 Christmas tree farms. That's one Christmas tree for every man, woman and child in the country. Here's Nigel Manley, director of the Roxas State Christmas Tree Farm in Bethlehem, New Hampshire. The biggest thing that I've heard from customers is, particularly with the balsam fir, when you open the door when you come home from work, you can smell that tree in the house. And that scent is what makes Christmas for them. That's the biggest thing for the Christmas trees. So what does any of this have to do with the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago? After all, that is where the story of Christmas all begins. But how do we know what we know about the birth of Jesus? We actually have two different sources from the New Testament for the Nativity. We have the Gospel of Matthew and we have the Gospel of Luke. They don't refer to one another, they may not even have known about each other, and they tell us two different sets of things about what happened for Jesus' birth. And what we tend to do is we put these two stories together to get a kind of full picture that we call the Nativity. Matthew's Gospel gives us the Star of Bethlehem and the wise men. And no, contrary to popular belief, there were not three of the wise men. The Bible only mentions that they brought three gifts for the baby Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the exact number of wise men is not included in the scriptures. There's a kind of symbolic value to these gifts. What they're doing is they're bringing really, really precious goods to honor this child with a very humble birth. And there's a, a message there about how we need to recognize this birth isn't really humble at all because this is a king being born. This is the first example of Christmas gift giving. But nowhere in the New Testament is it recorded when this birth actually happened. One of the few things that all scholars seem to agree on is that Jesus wasn't born in the wintertime. Now I know that's a terrible thing to say, but let me explain. The early followers of Jesus Christ weren't concerned with marking his birthday, partially because they expected his imminent return. So why bother creating a birthday? But this didn't prevent early Christian scholars and present-day historians from trying to speculate when he was born. The one thing you will get from their estimates on Christ's birth is that they all occur in the springtime. And that makes a great deal of sense, because one of the few details you'll find in the Gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus Christ is that it was at a time when the shepherds were with their flocks in the fields. That could not have been in December, because what we do know about the traditions of ancient Judea is that at that time shepherds took their flocks indoors so they wouldn't get cold at night. 
starting in November, and they wouldn't bring them back out again until March. So how did Jesus end up with a birthday on December 25th? Long before Jesus was born, the Romans celebrated many pagan holidays, particularly in December, and these end-of-year festivities set the stage for our modern Christmas holiday. One Roman holiday was Saturnalia, which began on December 17th and was a series of parties that would last anywhere from three to five or maybe seven days. And you can think of it as sort of a big office party, but in togas. And only three laws governed Romans during the holiday. Number one, all businesses should be closed except bakeries, cookeries, and those that tend to sport and solace and delight. Number two, anger, resentment, and threats are strictly forbidden. Number three, no discourse shall either be composed or delivered, except it be witty and lusty, conducing to mirth and jollity. The second party is New Year's. It was a five-day party, and it was quite enjoyable as well. And then in between Saturnalia and New Year's, there was already a birthday celebration for a Roman-related god on December 25th. That god, Mithras, was born and honored on December 25th. After Christianity became Rome's official religion in the 4th century, leaders chose to absorb pagan traditions rather than outlaw them. But in a prelude to those who complain today about what a shame it is that we don't celebrate Christmas the way they used to, that Christmas has been commercialized. Well, 16 centuries ago, Archbishop Gregory of Constantinople urged that the Christmas celebration be conducted after a heavenly and not an earthly manner. And he warned his congregants against feasting to excess, dancing, and crowning the doors. But as the church continued to absorb various ancient traditions, what emerged were two experiences of Christmas, one sacred and one secular. Each of these Christmases also had their own separate music, just like we have today. You have hymns in the church, they're sacred music, and they're sung in Latin. And you find gradually the development in the 12th century of Christmas carols. And Christmas carols are sung in the vernacular. They're not in Latin. They're languages everybody knows. And people enjoy these songs and people sing them together. And very quickly there gets to be the tradition of not singing these songs in church. But medieval caroling was not just about caroling. It was about drinking. At every door, revelers begged for a gulp from the household punch bowl, getting drunker with every note they sang. So what Christmas looks like doesn't look an awful lot like a sort of solemn, biblically oriented holiday. It looks like something else. It looks like it's always looked, frankly. It's this kind of festival of celebration and revelry. All of this celebration and merriment didn't sit well, especially after the Protestant Reformation. One of the hallmarks of Martin Luther's message was to clear away from the entire church calendar all the feasts and saints days. And Christmas was one of the many feast days in the Catholic Church, and Luther tried to get rid of almost all of them. But there were just too many people who enjoyed St. Nick's December 6th feast day. Besides feasting, this day also involved gift giving, 
So what Martin Luther suggested was this. Instead of telling kids about St. Nicholas bringing gifts, they would tell the kids that the gifts were brought by the Christ child himself. How do you say Christ child in Luther's German language? Christ Kindle. That's right, Christ Kindle. Well, Luther's attempts failed, but Christ Kindle got swallowed up by Christmas and got transformed into Chris Kringle. Yet another endearing name for the big man in the red suit. So why did Luther declare a war on Christmas? He did because it wasn't mentioned in the Bible. One of the messages of the Reformation was go back to the Bible. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. Part of the logic behind that argument was expressed by an American Puritan of a later generation. Ezra Stiles, who was one of the first presidents of Yale College, who said this, Had it been the will of Christ that the anniversary of his nativity should have been celebrated, he would have at least let us know the day. By the 17th century, Christian reformers were losing patience with the rowdier Christmas traditions. They decided to ban Christmas altogether. There's a kind of backlash against Christmas. Among Protestant groups, you find a desire to not celebrate Christmas, a repudiation of Christmas as kind of a Catholic invention, frankly, something that the Catholic Church had allowed happen. In 1652, England banned Christmas. Ministers who preached about the Nativity on Christmas Day could be imprisoned. Churches risked fines if they tried to decorate their buildings. The law said that shops must stay open on Christmas as if it were any other business day. Now this was the law, but nobody said it was popular. Although people believed the Puritans had a lot of religious substance on their side, they enjoyed Christmas. But Christmas would have an equally hard time in New England during the early 17th century. Pious settlers from England looked upon Christmas with suspicion. The newly formed Puritan colony of Massachusetts wanted no part of the holiday. And in 1659, it banned Christmas too. The Puritans of New England were very well aware of the pagan associations with the celebrations of the winter solstice, and they wished to avoid any kind of association with that. One Puritan commentator said that Christmas was chastity's shipwreck. And another one in Boston said that men did more dishonor to Christ on the 12 days of Christmas than they did the entire 12 months of the year. During the Revolutionary War, America had still not yet embraced Christmas, which in one instance was a blessing. One of the key and most inspiring battles of the Revolution was the Battle of Trenton. This battle has been immortalized in the famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware River as he boldly stands at the front of the boat next to an American flag. Washington made that crossing on Christmas of 1776. One of the primary reasons that the Americans were able to prevail was because they surprised the Hessians, the German mercenaries who worked for the British, and the British at Trenton, New Jersey. Because they were all drunk, they had been celebrating Christmas, but the Americans did not. As the American colonies spread down throughout the southern coast, the settlers were less enthusiastic about banning Christmas because a great many of them were Catholic immigrants. And once Protestants got exposed to Christmas, they found it very attractive. 
by the mid-1700s, they had adopted many of their European Christmas traditions, keeping the rowdy Christmas behavior of the past alive. Early Republic records are full of instances where people in, you know, a gentleman's home in Virginia, they're having a nice Christmas dinner when the local rowdies get word of it and pound on the door and they go through this very ancient ritual of give us some food and drink or we're going to throw rocks through your windows. And so there's both those traditions are, are still there. But as America matured, so did its Christmas customs. Respectable middle-class Americans wanted to take the rowdy Christmas, the public Christmas that took place outdoors, and move it indoors. I mean, these are people who had property. They were afraid of destruction. They were afraid of losing things that they own. So they want to take this public rowdy event and take it from the streets and bring it into the home and make the focus of Christmas around the family, around this private gathering that takes place in the house. This effort was most deliberate and most successful in rapidly expanding New York City. The city that never sleeps has shaped the modern secular Christmas more than any other city in the world. And it's really because of the efforts of two very gifted New Yorkers who lived there in the 1800s. They would reinvent old world Christmas customs to create our modern American holiday. And they would mold our image of jolly old Saint Nick. New York in the 1800s was a city that was alive with change. The population was booming. There was new industry. There were the new stores that were growing up that provided the foundation for what became the commercialization of Christmas. But it was not only a city that was alive with change, it was also a city that was alive with new ideas. Clement Clark Moore, a New York professor of Oriental and Greek literature, who helped create New York's Chelsea neighborhood, and designed St. Peter's Episcopal Church, had an idea that would change Christmas forever. In 1822, he wrote a 56-line poem he called A Visit from St. Nicholas, better known today as The Night Before Christmas. Almost single-handedly, he created the modern American version of Christmas. What's really interesting about Moore's poem is it distilled various traditions in the early 19th century and put them all together and added his own, Moore's own imaginings. Moore's poem becomes a path-breaking moment, a watershed in how Christmas is celebrated. Moore's subject was Santa, as we know him today. His inspiration? Two legendary Christmas figures of the old world. One was Saint Nicholas, a 4th century bishop renowned for gift-giving, legendary for leaving presents in stockings. The other was Sinterklaas, the Dutch version of Saint Nicholas. Sinterklaas had merged a bit with Odin, the Norse pagan god of Yule, who flew through the sky on an eight-legged horse before the mid-19th century. Santa Claus comes in different shapes and sizes. He arrives, you know, on a boat, on a horse, uh, on a sleigh, and all of that sort of codified and narrowed down in America, largely in New York City. Both old world legends were rich in details, many of which Moore chose to leave out. One omission was a bizarre, dark, devil-like sidekick of St. Nicholas named Krampus, or Black Peter and Krampus brought a switch to punish naughty children, or worse. They had horns, 
long red tongue covered with fur, tail, and hoof. And he would come into the room right after St. Nicholas. And one scene in particular shows two little boys cowering because outside the door is this devil figure, Krampus. But Clement Clark Moore St. Nick embodied only good. Moore introduced several new characteristics for Santa. He dressed him in American fur, gave him a pipe, a huge belt, and portrayed him not as a priest, but a jolly dimpled elf with a twinkle in his eye. On his back he toted a sack full of toys for the children of the house. Moore also gave him a sleigh that he flew through the sky, led not by a horse, but by eight reindeer. But a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. <laughs> Each with its own name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen. On Comet, on Cupid, on Dunder and Blitzen. Moore's poem, which has become the most famous poem in the English language, enthralled 19th century Americans. It created a new kind of Christmas, neither rowdy nor religious, but centered on home and family. In the decades that followed, artists would expand on Moore's imagery, but his would be the vision that would endure. One interesting thing about the poem is that book editors actually changed the last line. In Moore's original version, it was, Happy Christmas to all and to all a good night. Most books change happy to merry. As iconic as Clement Clark Moore's Santa was, he still wasn't the fully formed Kris Kringle we know today. His Santa had no North Pole workshop, no elves, no letters from kids, and no naughty and nice list. Where did these details come from? The credit goes to another New Yorker, illustrator Thomas Nast. He took more Santa and produced the definitive version for generations to come. Thomas Nast is one of the great illustrators of the 19th century. A lot of the images that we see today, he created. When you think about you know, the donkey and the elephant for the Democratic and Republican Party, he created it. The image of Uncle Sam that we've all come to know is a creation of Thomas Nast. And he also is the person who gave us our modern version of Santa Claus. In 1862, one of America's major magazines, Harper's Weekly, commissioned Nast to draw its Christmas illustrations. He transformed the Moore's jolly old elf into someone taller and grander. So he becomes your grandfather. Gives him the full flowing white beard, which is the image of a wealthy person in, in the Victorian uh, world. Um, he was wearing a red coat with white trim, black boots, the buckled belt, the pipe. Nass' image of Santa became indelible. And with every Christmas grew richer in its detail. Santa, one could say, has become America's national saint. Nass does this year after year. He creates lots of the things we associate with Santa Claus. The list of naughty and nice, living at the North Pole, and that becomes the image of Santa Claus. And by the mid-19th century, the Christmas tree, a variation of the ancient Norse custom, became the centerpiece to the family-oriented American Christmas, all because of one picture. On December 23, 
1848, the London News published an image of the young Queen Victoria and Prince Albert with their family assembled around a Christmas tree, part of Albert's German tradition. England fell in love with it immediately. Two years later, the same image of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert was republished in a very popular American magazine with a couple of alterations. They took out Queen Victoria's crown and took off Prince Albert's mustache so that they looked a little bit more American. And it was a way of sort of essentially telling middle-class Americans who bought this magazine that this would be a tradition, this is a tradition worthy of your home. The Christmas tree had officially arrived in America. By 1856, President Franklin Pierce was putting one in the White House. In 1939, Copywriter Robert L. May was creating a whole new holiday icon, a red-nosed reindeer named Rudolph. The Rudolph figure is created for Montgomery Ward Department Store in Chicago, and they want to have essentially kind of a handout, a Christmas favor, if you will. So he writes a 38-page pamphlet in verse about this woebegone reindeer. Originally calls him Rolo the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Towards the end, they decide to need something a little more punch, so it becomes Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and it's a huge hit. Ten years later, in 1949, May's brother-in-law, songwriter Johnny Marks, set the Rudolph poem to music. He wrote the song and gave it to Gene Autry, and Gene Autry didn't like it. He didn't even want to record it. And Gene Autry's wife said, no, this is a good song. You need to record it. You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen, but do you recall the most famous reindeer of all, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Autry finally agreed to record the song, but only as a B-side to one of his records. It became the biggest hit of Autry's career. Another classic Christmas song from around the same time was written by a Jewish immigrant from Russia, Irving Berlin, and sung by Bing Crosby. This Christmas song is the most beloved and celebrated song ever written. It's a song that was heard for the very first time on Christmas 1941 just 18 days after Pearl Harbor was bombed. The song is White Christmas. Of a white Christmas Just like the ones I used So the song doesn't really catch on. It's the spring of 1942. We've just gone to war. But it catches on in the fall of 42, which is when America is really approaching its one-year mark of being at war. And these now hundreds of thousands, soon to be millions of GIs, are going to be spending their first Christmas away from home. And that's where that song has that real heartstring-pulling, nostalgic feel to it, that the record sales just skyrocket in October, November, December of uh, 1942. White Christmas is the most successful single ever released, and it has been for more than 60 years. According to the Guinness World Records, the version sung by Bing Crosby is the best-selling single of all time, with estimated sales in excess of 100 million copies worldwide. The homespun values at the heart of White Christmas were what Americans at home and those fighting abroad longed for. In 1946, 
Americans found those values in the reigning classic of all Christmas-themed movies, It's a Wonderful Life. It's Wonderful Life started life uh, as a short story called The Greatest Gift by uh, Philip Van Doren Stern. And it wound up in the hands of Frank Capra, who had just come back from World War II, uh, where he had shot the Why We Fight series of, of propaganda films for the U.S. Army. The Oscar-winning director crafted a sentimental masterpiece about a man named George Bailey, a man who sees the world as it would be had he never been born. Mother, what do you want? Mother, this, this is George. I, I thought sure you'd remember me. The impact this movie has had on the movie industry can be seen in every Steven Spielberg film. For inspiration, Spielberg has said that he watches It's a Wonderful Life before starting any new film. And whenever he goes on location for a new film, he takes along a copy of It's a Wonderful Life to show his cast how movies should be made. And it also must be said, the kiss between Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed is hands down the greatest kiss in movie-making history. Now you listen to me. I don't want any plastics, I don't want any ground floors, and I don't want to get married ever to anyone. You understand that? I want to do what I want to do. And you're... And you're... George, George, George. The broadcast success of It's a Wonderful Life proved that Christmas and television were a powerful combination. By the 1960s, baby boomers were enjoying a golden age of holiday TV. There was a golden age of Christmas specials that began about in the mid-60s and went into the mid-70s. These specials were aimed specifically at children, although were sophisticated enough to entertain the adults that were in the room. After Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol in 1962, came a flurry of animated specials. But in 1965, one Christmas special featuring a little round-headed kid seeking the true meaning of Christmas topped them all. Here's Lee Mendelson, the executive producer for A Charlie Brown Christmas. In 1965, we got a call from the McCann Erickson Advertising Agency who represented Coca-Cola. They said, have you and Mr. Schultz ever thought of doing a Charlie Brown Christmas show? And I lied and said, absolutely. So I called uh, Sparky, our nickname for Mr. Schultz, and said, um, I think I just sold a Charlie Brown Christmas. And he said, what's that? And I said, it's something you're going to write tomorrow. Mendelssohn and animator Bill Melendez had to create an animated special in just six months. They made radical creative choices, like using child actors for the voices. Here's Peter Robbins, the voice of Charlie Brown. I was nine years old, they were eight years old, seven years old. We're all in one recording studio, bouncing off the walls, playing with the drums and stuff, because it was a recording studio where, like, the Doors recorded their albums. The work progressed, but time was running out. We did end up finishing it just like a week before it went on the air. Then we took it to CBS, and the three fellows there didn't like it at all. And they said, we're going to have to run it because it's scheduled for four days from now. But, you know, nice try, but it, it just doesn't work. So as we went through these minefields, it's amazing it ever even got on the air. One issue that concerned everyone was Schultz's insistence that the show quote the Bible. One of us said, you know, do you really think we can, you know, animate a kid reading from the Bible? Do you think we can get, get this through? And I remember he said at the time, 
Well, if we don't do it, who will? Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. Bill staged it in a very, very simple format. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And the way that wonderful actor, Chris Shea, read it. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. It became, you know, one of the really indelible moments, probably in animated history. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Then, in 1983, author and humorist Gene Shepard immortalized his childhood in an autobiographical account of One Boy's Christmas. Here's screenwriter of The Christmas Story and the voice of Ralphie as an adult, Gene Shepard, telling us about his real-life childhood encounter with Santa that inspired the most memorable scene in the movie. You know, I had been thinking for weeks what I wanted for Christmas. I figured the best thing to do is to tell Santa Claus about that. And I looked up at that Santa Claus, and he had these big, watery blue eyes and a huge beard and all, and he's looking me right in the eye. And he was so impressive that my mind went blank. Ho, 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 then what's your name, little boy? It's like if all of a sudden you're, you're sitting on the president's lap, and he says, what would you like me to pass in legislation, Sonny? I mean, your mind's going to go blank. You can't remember any of this stuff. And so at that point, Santa Claus looked at me and he says, All right, <laughs> how about a football, kid? How about a nice uh, football? A football. I wanted a BB gun. <laughs> so he pushed me off his lap, and this elf grabbed me and threw me down a slide that went down into the snow. And I laid there for a minute, and I knew but I was not a fit person to talk to the great. Santa Claus was obviously a star. These days, the glow from our holiday lights and television sets help banish the cold, dark winter nights the way the Yule logs and bonfires once did a thousand years ago. People make up holidays. Traditions are invented, but there are uses for those cultural tropes that stay with us for centuries. There's something about the deeper meaning there that is singing to our bones and we hear it and we think, yes, that's the tradition and that's what I want to celebrate. For as long as we can remember, we bring in our greens and turn on the lights. We hang our stockings and sing our carols in church and in the streets amidst the chaos. We even find time to rejoice at the birth of a child 2,000 years ago. Something touches America somewhere down deep in his belly button about Christmas. He can't really explain what it is about Christmas that he enjoys so much. <laughs> he just knows that when all those red and green lights go up, you know, on the street, and you see Santa Clauses walking around with their bells, if something happens to you, you enjoy it. Now, you can be cynical all you want, but you still enjoy it.
From our family at Our American Stories, we'd like to say to you and yours, Merry Christmas to you all, and to all, a good night. And this is Our American Stories, and again, that's all Greg Hengler and all the folks he works with putting these great pieces together. And by the way, one thing that really struck me through the piece, and I'm sure you had your favorite, but Irving Berlin was a Jewish man, and he was from Russia. And this one man gave us two great American standards. A Russian wrote God Bless America, and a Jew wrote White Christmas. And this truly is the most American thing about America, that I could say a sentence like that. We can only say something like that in this great country. And so we talk about Christmas, we talk about America here on Our American Stories. Have a blessed Christmas, and go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.